0: You know, I've always thought that health was important, but the economy is, too. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about climate change is you can have both. And that's what we should demand.
1: Welcome to Environmental Insights, a new podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavins, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Harvard Environmental Economics program. Today, we're really very fortunate to have with us Gina McCarthy, who served in the Obama administration as the 13th administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency from 2013 to 2017 and is now a professor of the practice of public health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, where she is the founding director of the school's Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment. Welcome, Gina. It's
0: great to be here, Rob.
1: Before we talk about your extensive experience working on climate change, and for that matter, many other environmental problems at EPA, and your current work at the Harvard School of Public Health, let's go back to how you came to be where you've been and where you where you are (laughs) and when I say go back I mean I'd like to start by going way back. So where did you grow up?
0: Uh, I grew up um, just south of Boston. My family uh, is originally from Dorchester so when I was a young kid we moved out um, uh, to Canton Massachusetts which is a few miles south of that.
1: And then primary school was where?
0: Uh, St. John's Elementary School in Canton, Massachusetts. High school was Fontbonne Academy in Milton. Then I went to UMass Boston.
1: And how did you like UMass Boston?
0: I loved it. What did it, you study there? I My uh, undergraduate degree was in cultural anthropology. And, you know, the reason for that is I, I don't think I was, in fact, I know I was not the most serious student in high school. Uh, St. John's Elementary school was so tough, it taught me just about everything you needed to know. <laughs> so I sort of skirted by in, in high school, and uh, my dad was a school teacher for 40 years, so we really didn't have the money to go to a fancy school, mm-hmm. and not many people have had the choices then that they right. have now for schools. So I, I picked UMass Boston, and I have never regretted it. It was the best education for me. I picked anthropology because I've, I'd never taken it before. Uh, so if I didn't like school before, I thought this was a good opening for me, and I loved it. Um, it was just it was just a wonderful experience for me to sort of, as a people person to mm-hmm. understand differences mm-hmm. of opinion. It was really a cultural, Eye opener for me that has always been hugely beneficial.
1: Now, did you go directly from there to graduate school at Tufts, or did some other things intervene?
0: No, yeah, probably intervening was going skiing and doing other <laughs> things for a couple of years. But no, I went and I and I, con- I actually continued uh, part time doing work like switchboard at Children's Hospital, mm-hmm. lifeguarding. Um, I mean, you name it, uh, waitressing for a while, and it, so it was. A, it was a hiatus of about maybe one and a half, two years, when I started to realize that I had to get serious again and think about what I actually wanted to do.
1: But then you turned to environment for the first time, at least in terms of academia at Tufts. How did that come
0: about? Well, I'm not sure it was environment. Uh (laughs) You know, I went to to Tufts in two different programs. One of them was called Urban Environmental Policy, and the other was the Environmental Health Engineering Program, and really it was the Environmental Health Engineering Program that originally got me interested in this because it really looked at at how you look at environment as a fundamental health issue. Mm-hmm. And so it really got me started looking at things like community health centers at that time in terms of frontline delivery, uh, how community health workers could, could promote public health in a, a more population-based effort. And I thought it was fascinating. And, and honestly, since then, I've always looked at my career, even though every agency I've worked for says environment in it, mm-hmm. it really is essentially a public health agency trying to deliver you know, clean air and clean water. It was it never viewed to me as being any different and um, that public that pers- health and environment.
1: That perspective is certainly reflected a lot in your later work all it the is. way up to EPA. Uh, but before you got to mm-hmm. EPA, you served in a number of administrations both yeah. in Connecticut and Massachusetts. Yeah. So how how did that come about?
0: Well, I, uh, I actually started working at a local board of health. I started working community mm-hmm. health centers. Then I shifted to local board of health because everybody walking into those health centers were really struggling with poor nutrition because they didn't have healthy food, mm-hmm. lead paint poisoning. I mean, everything that I suspected where the challenges of these poorer communities, these right. minority communities, were, were really environmentally related. And so I started at the Board of Health in Canton, and I started doing things there that were implementing the, mo- the recent... Um, EPA and, and, and U.S. Uh, laws on environment, and I got pretty aggressive um, on implementing those, not in terms of the outcome, but in terms of engaging the community in these issues. So I ended up representing Boards of Health on a, on a committee um, uh, at the state level and I ended up doing a lot of work there and I eventually got hired to staff and, and the rest is sort of history. It, it ended up being that I was appointed first by Governor Dukakis during mm-hmm. his second term here in Massachusetts and I ended up uh, uh, serving Governor Romney for the mm-hmm. first for his first couple of years before the opening in Connecticut for the secretary position opened up the commissioner level position.
1: And then from that commissioner uh, position in Connecticut, you went directly to the Obama administration, to the Office of Air and Radiation as assistant administrator there. Is that right?
0: I did. um, Fortunately, during the time in Connecticut, we moved forward with the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, Mm -hmm. and I was part of the board to initiate that and help to design it and get it moving. And I met Lisa Jackson, and Lisa Uh Jackson ended up being the appointee Mm -hmm. uh, for President Obama as administrator of U.S. EPA. And she, you know, and she called me and, and we exchanged ideas and she asked if I wanted to go to EPA and I said no. I was kind of having a lot of fun in Connecticut and then she said again, well, what if you got to do air and climate? I said, Mm -hmm. bing, 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 yeah, I'll do that
1: and (laughs) And that's how it happened. And for many years, I think going back to the 1970 Clean Air Act itself, the Office of Air and Radiation has been the premier office. That's the one which is, I think, generally been viewed within EPA as the most critical.
0: Well, it's the it's the one that's most active because, frankly, it's the one that has the best law. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it it really gives the, because the AIR is 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 not confined to any political boundaries. It seems it's seen as being a vital federal role to ensure that that states play fairly and that. Uh, communities are protected across the United States as best we can in an equal way, and so it always challenges more and more decisions to be made every year that are really seen mm-hmm. as very vital and visible to public health. and And so it was a, a gift for me to end up there. and And frankly, Rob, I went. One of the things that attracted me was to. Take a look at all of the air pollution that was coming from, you know, upwind mm-hmm. and ending up in New England because mm-hmm. that's where I live and right. that's where I've worked. And I was real, really frustrated by the fact that that so many, so few utilities um, uh, upstream and upwind um, were actually doing the kind of uh, aggressive cleanup work that we were doing in New England. And I resented the fact that. New England could shut off all its lights tomorrow and still not have clean air. So I th- consider that to be a big fairness issue and a big lag in EPA's responsibility under the Clean Air Act to protect the downwind mm-hmm. states.
1: Now, now, as I recall, although you had already been confirmed by the U.S. Senate for the assistant administrator position, when you were nominated mm-hmm. by President Obama to be the administrator of EPA, um, it was a rather contentious issue experience in the u.s senate so why was that
0: um i must have done a hell of a job as assistant administrator huh uh you know it, it really was at that point in time i think just a uh Uh, opportunity to slow down the ability of the agency to Mm -hmm. function at full steam. That did not work because there was a great deputy administrator there after Lisa Jackson left, Mm -hmm. Bob Purchaseppi, who kept the trains running. It was frustrating to me because it wasn't really a challenge by the industry. We had done Mm -hmm. a lot of work uh, in in the first four years that, that I was there. And you would have expected that that would have been the problem, but it, it, I don't think it was. And I think there were a lot of industry folks that stood up and said, you know, she's doing a she's doing a, a bit of a fair process here. Mm-hmm. And while we may not like the outcome, we had a lot of ability to be heard, and, and there were changes made. And so I was really proud of the work I did in those first four years and hoped it would grease the skids a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't, um, and I, I honestly think that was just a, a continued challenge for the Obama administration by a a Republican Senate um, that just simply didn't want to confirm
1: so it was part of this process of political polarization which has been increasing over the years i mean if we take the yeah. numbers by which the cleaner act amendments of 1990 passed in the house and senate it's about as i recall something like 92% of democrats and about 87 to 90% of republicans contrast that with something we'll talk about in a moment the max mm-hmm. waxman markey legislation yes. which yeah. of course you were working
0: and so i think closely Rob, on. i think a lot of it was the the uh, increasing partisanship around the issue of climate change, Correct. because it was no secret that that was the thing that President Obama wanted to yeah. do next. And I was pretty well positioned, given all my work at the state yeah. level, to to get this and move it forward. Yeah.
1: So before we really dig in on climate change, which I do want to do with you, um, I want to just step back and think about all of your time at EPA, where you worked on a lot mm-hmm. besides climate change, of course. Yeah. Um, and I'm interested in what was both the best part of that job and what was the worst part of that job, those four years as EPA administrator?
0: The first four years um, was the fact that the prior administration uh, under, under um, Bush did, did very little to meet their obligations under the Clean Air Act. So when I got there, I was faced with Um, requirements from the courts in a variety Mm -hmm. of different different ways, court orders or settlements, and and with very tight timelines to get a whole lot of things done. And some of them were really important, others not so much. And so trying to figure out how you could get the most important work done um, was all tied up with all these other obligations. And so the, the challenge for me was to figure out you know, really hard how to sequence this, how to get the staff focused on the right things, how we might get some additional time for what we call mandatory duties mm-hmm. um, that were real and we had to do them, but wouldn't yield quite so much in explaining that if we focus on the more important things first, it may be beneficial mm-hmm. uh, and more beneficial. So it was, that was the biggest challenge i had was people were running all over the place to get decisions done and you know you start new i don't want i don't want decisions that don't fully comp- uh, contemplate mm-hmm. all the issues and i think we did a great job getting there but i think the staff were 24 7 and it's probably they may have liked it because it's the first time they were challenged in eight years to yeah. do these things but it was i i felt like they were really overtaxed and remain that way, frankly, uh, for for all of the time I was there.
1: Now, the legislation on climate change, this very comprehensive bill, which included a cap and trade element, but a lot of other aspects as well, what's often referred to as the Waxman-Markey bill. Yeah. Um, of course, it succeeded in the House of Representatives on a largely partisan vote, uh, and then never came to a vote in the Senate. Reflecting on that now, is there anything that you would have done differently or that you wish, for that matter, the White House yeah. or the administration had done differently?
0: Well, Rob, you know, I, I, I think President Obama really banked on the, the uh, you know, Waxman-Markey bill proceeding and becoming law. Um, But it got so embroiled, it it became what many people call a Christmas tree, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, let's do this law, but I need an exception here, or I need a limitation here, or we have to address trade issues here, which were not wrong. Mm -hmm. But it was the challenge of a cap-and-trade approach Mm -hmm. that became just overwhelming. And and so it, it delayed things. And I think the president his main focus at that point was was health care, and moving forward with the Affordable Care Act. So the the emphasis I was never really engaged much. The staff was in providing support for cap and trade legislation to do the analytics behind it. I was never really engaged. That was managed at the at the White House. So what we did instead was recognize that we still have obligations under the Clean Air Act, and until those obligations go away we better start thinking about it. Because by then, when I went in there, Mass versus EPA had happened, so the, the Supreme Court had spoken to the obligations under the Clean Air Act to consider you know, carbon pollution um, as, a, as a pollutant under the Clean Air Act, if it really seriously impacted health and well-being. So instead of focusing on what was going on on the Hill, we did our own work. To get, commu- to get various constituencies together. We did stakeholder processes which very much were robust. We did it with industry, environmental groups, with government entities, with local communities, trying to figure out what the range of alternatives were to meet our responsibility in uh, obviously the event that the cap and trade program mm-hmm. wouldn't move forward in these obligations would still be on us. So I think we made good use of that time and we really challenged folks to step up and think about, if this doesn't happen, what's the best thing to do under our laws? Mm-hmm. How do we get at this? And so it was, I think, a very engaging and public and transparent process that, that helped to um, allow us to move more expeditiously over time in right. in addressing some of these broader challenges using the Clean Air Act.
1: Now you, you mentioned the Supreme Court decision mm. um, with the response to which was the endangerment finding Yes. Um, while you were at assistant administrator, I assume, yes. of air yep. and radiation. Can you say something about that endangerment finding? Because one thing that's striking to me is that it really reflects very strongly in its substance where you started us off on in terms of your interest in public health.
0: Yeah, it so- does. Um, and, uh, you know, the endangerment finding, it, 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 remember when I, when I talked about the decision by the Supreme Court, I said when, when there's a real impact on health and well-being, mm-hmm. that's when EPA is obligated to act. And the way in which the EPA moved forward was a sector-based approach. And so we went to the largest sectors first. If you remember, even before I I got my first job at EPA, they were talking about the clean cars rules mm-hmm. and agreements with the auto manufacturers, which meant that if we were going to effectively work with DOT, where they would look at fuel economy, we would look at greenhouse gas emissions as a pollutant, then we would have to do an endangerment finding for that sector. And that became the first one of the first big tasks to deliver. Because without understanding the implications uh, of the emissions from cars on the issue of climate change then we wouldn't have been able to move forward and we wouldn't have been able to have the documents we needed to, to express the impact on public health and society as a whole or welfare. Uh, well-being in order to underpin our authority we needed to actually move forward by regulation. Mm -hmm. It was an enormous undertaking, just an enormous undertaking, because it had to look at the thousand-plus studies Mm -hmm. that underpin the uh, International um, Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC's report, And then in the middle of all that, what what they did actually was take each study and try to summarize it in a, a condensed way to to develop the endangerment finding. We had great scientists working on this, but they had to contact every author to make sure that what they summarized was accurate right. and get them to sign off. And then in the middle of that was ClimateGate. Do you remember yes, that, of Rob? Yes, Which was the craziness of, of leaked emails that looked like, uh, were made to look like scientists were somehow... Stacking the deck in terms of their outcome because of what they wanted it to be, which turned out to be completely false. So they went back and removed all of those studies from consideration Uh and re-looked at it again. It ended up being just a massive document that, that continued to be updated every time a new sector was looked at. We took that and we updated it, and we look, and so it's a wealth of science information that has not been challenged effectively. Yeah,
1: that's what's striking is that although the current administration has sought and in some cases succeeded in turning back so many uh, initiatives of the Obama years, they have not even attempted, despite the fact that some groups have called for it, uh, reopening and trying to overturn the endangerment finding because the record is so solid, apparently.
0: Well, you know, you can, you can... <laughs> I really don't know the the motivation behind a lot of the decisions this administration is making but you have to assume that the endangerment finding is something they just don't want to relook at because it you know it's gone to the Supreme Court a number of times it's it's very well done it's substantive and frankly I think they read the tea leaves that attacking the climate science now is not exactly where people want to be right they're worried about it they know that things are changing and and it's more what do you do about it? That's the better discussion for people to have. And I think they know that.
1: Now, when the uh, Waxman Markey legislation didn't go forward in the Senate, then eventually the administration, including EPA, of course, came up with uh, what's generally known as the Clean Power Plan yes. as a regulatory approach instead. Mm-hmm. That now has been overturned mm-hmm. by the current administration with what they call the Affordable Clean Energy Rule. Have Have you taken a look at the Affordable Clean Energy Rule? Yeah. So yeah. T- tell us your reaction to that, please.
0: <laughs> well, I think it's it's hard to explain all this, Robin. Maybe you can help me with it. Yeah. But, you know, the the uh, the Clean Power Plan was was really f- a focus on reducing greenhouse gases from the power sector, mm-hmm. and we realized that th- in doing that that you know, power isn't about an individual facility, it's about a system, right. it's about regions, it's about interconnected systems. And we felt pretty strongly that if you were going to design a strategy around this, you had to look at that interconnected system, which thankfully gave huge opportunities to look outside the, the individual facility and to look m- at setting a standard that really recognized that states and regions can do something much more creative than looking at within the fence line changes. And that was different than than the, this part of the statute had done things before, but it's part of the statute that's hardly ever been tested. So, in, so we designed a system that really re- allowed ultimate flexibility for the states to either do it on their, you know, regulate their utilities on their own, look at regulating them region look at joining a national system. And we were, we were learning that from the acid rain program mm-hmm. and how well and effective that was to actually make sure that the reductions were coming in the least expensive way. So it kept you know prices low and, in fact, in the later years would have reduced them and it would achieve like 32% reduction uh, off of 20, 2005 baseline by 2030, which was pretty big at that time. So what the administration did was, instead of taking that approach, they decided to design this affordable clean energy rule as as a, a, a thinking that you t- that each utility and each uh, unit. Would need to look at itself separately and so not recognize line, it was all within used. the fence line which means that it was way mm. more expensive mm-hmm. for, for units of reduction and in fact over the by 2030 it would have gotten at the most, they thought one and a half percent beyond base baseline but we when we looked at it and looked at what it essentially would do, it would have really done nothing right. uh, but provide an opportunity to do nothing for a really long time
1: and, and also so, at, at relatively high costs because whereas the clean Clean Power Plan was potentially cost-effective because it facilitated. Indeed, in the final form, it really encouraged cap-and-trade systems for the states or even interstate. That's essentially prevented by within the fence line approach.
0: That's correct. And what the original proposal for the Affordable Clean Energy uh, Act uh, uh, rule uh, did was also sort of try to encapsulate changes to what we call new source review, which is a permitting Mm -hmm. program that looks to make sure that as utilities expand, they don't continue to contribute more and more uh, emissions. And if you look at both of those changes, the, the act itself and new source review, which in the end they have separated out you will see that it really opens the door for utilities under the guise of, of complying with this rule mm-hmm. to increase their efficiency wouldn't any longer be capped in terms of their level of emissions. It was basically a two-part giveaway mm-hmm. to industry to actually pollute more and to provide no opportunity, significant opportunity for greenhouse gas reductions. So it was disturbing in many ways, and mm-hmm. I know you as an economist would have noted the awkwardness of the cost-benefit analysis yes, that tried to stretch to say it was somehow cost-effective, but absolutely couldn't.
1: It couldn't, yes.
0: and, uh And uh, it, it, was, it was discouraging, to say the least, to see that in the clean power plant cost-benefit analysis, they embraced indirect costs to try to make mm-hmm. it look less expensive. But in the mercury and air toxic standard, they decided you weren't allowed to mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. And they had already f- done that before, so mm-hmm. it's the inconsistency to stretch for an outcome is really uh, what I think most disturbs me, is that you got to play by the rules. There are rules.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, at the same time that you were very focused on the domestic aspects of climate change policy, the Obama administration, of course, was very engaged, think of Todd Stern, you know, over yeah. in his position yeah. of the people at the State Department in in his office. Uh, and others in the administration including yourself engaged in the international negotiations mm-hmm. under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change that eventually led to the Paris climate agreement now which of course the Mr Trump the President Trump has said that he will withdraw from November 2020 the soonest mm-hmm. that could actually happen w- what's your Assessment personally of the Paris Climate Agreement. I mean, some people see it as a half full glass of water or more. Some see it as a half empty glass of water or less. What's your assessment?
0: Well, you know, first, Rob, I I think the President Obama's strategy when I went in was well articulated in his Climate Action Plan because the whole reason to spend so much time looking at the Clean Power Plan, looking at another round of reductions in cars, looking at reductions in trucks—the biggest sectors. Where greenhouse gas emissions are are, uh, are available to be reduced cost-effectively. Uh, we just moved that forward because it gave him credibility mm-hmm. to work with the two big kahunas, which right. is China and India. Right. And so we got there and we did get the Paris Agreement. And the reason why I believe that it was so pivotal was because it it really brought every country to the table, recognizing that every country mm-hmm. had responsibility here. Certainly, no countries other than China and, and the U.S. are more responsible. Mm-hmm. But it brought everybody to the table, and everybody set rules, A- and we provided opportunities for funding uh, the the uh, work in the developing world so that they could develop plans that could be assessed and could be addressed. And every five years, the plans needed to be be revisited, the goals need to be revisited. So out of the gate, it was a wonderful accomplishment. But but the the trick is that it's got to be continued, um, and there's got to be U.S. leadership in order to really continue to make it real. And with that missing, um, I don't think anybody uh, could really argue that there's there's a uh, there's great progress being made uh, uh, on the Paris Agreement and those commitments. Uh, but my hope is that you know, a lot of other activities in the United States at the state and local level are really going to take up some of the slack and mm-hmm. also allow us to, to continue to not lose too much. But clearly, we have to have a, a next president that recognizes mm-hmm. the challenge of climate change and the challenge it poses to our health and well-being today and our international security and move forward on Paris.
1: And, and you know, in that regard, it's perhaps comforting then to take note of the fact that if the president does execute the withdrawal from the Paris Agreement in November 2020. I think it's two days off of Election yes. Day. That the Paris Agreement itself provides that any country can rejoin in 60 days, which is putting us close to Inauguration Day (laughs) if there is a change of administration. I
0: thought it was 30, but I'll take 60.
1: Yeah, Yeah,
0: it's not a big, momentous change. And I think what we've lost is a lot of credibility among Mm -hmm. the international community, and that's going to be hard to get back. Because, you know, people looked at the Paris Agreement and said, well, there's no punishment here. Those are people who aren't familiar with international. Agreements, because it's yes. not—that's not what it's about.
1: That's correct. It's I about agree.
0: saving face. It's about yep. providing yep. resources. It really was a joyous yep. occasion, and right. I'm, I, and maybe the sixty days after the election, we'll find some more joy.
1: Yeah. Well, before we run out of time, we're getting close to the end of our time now. Let, let me ask you to tell us uh, just a, a bit, a few words about the new center that yeah. you're running at the School of Public Health. So, you know, what are the objectives and and how is it going?
0: Well, Rob, thanks for that. Um, actually, it's called the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment, which you mentioned. And really, it's, it's an effort to try to recognize real science, and science in particular about public health, and connect that more directly with climate change, about how climate change exacerbates that, getting the medical community involved, getting people to understand it's about them, it's relevant to them. I've always been distressed at the climate conversation seemingly about polar bears or glaciers or faraway places instead of recognizing that it's here and now and it's and it's important to us. So we try to use real science, the science developed at the Harvard School of Public Health, mm-hmm. to relook and coordinate the challenges that we see between air pollution and health, between nutrition and health, between population science and health. I mean, all of these things go together systemically and it provides us an opportunity to not just make climate change personal and actionable, get people awake, but to really focus on solutions available, Rob. We we need to broaden the, the work, the engagement around climate. We need to talk about how good the answers are on climate and how much better the world would be if we think about aggressively moving and it's better for us, it's better for our health, it's better for our kids' future. And so I want to focus on the positive. I want to keep hope alive when, when, and get people's head out of D.C. and into their own communities, their schools, do what's right for our kids. You know, thousands of them are stepping up, and I want millions of people to recognize that. Uh, my favorite sign at the youth climate strike was, uh, if you won't act like adults, we will. And I just want people to act like adults.
1: You know, this really takes us full circle because we can note now how— appropriate it is, given where you started from in terms of your interest in public health and environmental health and then leading it into environmental policy, that although we try to get you over here to the Harvard mm-hmm. Kennedy School as frequently as possible, as do other parts of Harvard, your primary appointment, quite appropriately, is yeah. in the School of Public Health.
0: Yeah. I, I it, You're right. I came back from where I started from. Hopefully that's a sign of consistency as opposed to being boring, um, but, but it, it matters. I, you know, I've worked for so long trying to get people to first understand the challenge and the need to act on it. And secondly, to design really good solutions that do more than one thing. You know I've always thought that health was important, but the economy is too. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about climate change is you can have both, and that's what we should demand.
1: Yes. Well, listen, thank you very much, Gina, for taking time to join us today. Our guest today has been Gina McCarthy, professor of the practice of public health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School, a public health director of the Center for Climate Health and the Global Environment, and formerly the administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavins. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.keep.hks.harvard.edu.